Well, we'll turn for a short time now to the first passage in Ezekiel that we read in Ezekiel chapter 47. And looking at uh, these verses, 1 to 11 especially. Sorry, 1 to 12. Ezekiel is by no means an easy book to read through or to try and understand. There are certain passages of it, as you well know, that are quite difficult to follow and certainly to get into the meaning of. It's one of those books similar to Revelation in many ways, and indeed there are very close connections, as we'll see even this evening. But Ezekiel nevertheless has so much to tell us uh, in regard to God's dealings with his people, Ezekiel himself was taken away from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came uh, to Jerusalem in uh, 597 BC and took many of the people captive. The temple was destroyed and that was the beginning of 70 years of captivity before they came back again to try and re-establish the temple and the worship of God at Jerusalem. Now it's important for us to know something of that historical background, indeed to all the books of the Bible, but particularly to the likes of Ezekiel, because it gives you something of an understanding or an insight into what this man's situation was, how God was using that situation in order to try and bring teaching not only to the people that Ezekiel lived amongst in the exile um, in, in, uh, in uh, Babylon, but also, as we'll see, how that was how God used that whole situation and prophets like Ezekiel to reach forward or to see beyond the return from exile, the return to Jerusalem, well beyond that into the days of the New Testament age and even on beyond that itself into uh, the eternity of God's people. Now Ezekiel would have been around about 26 years of age or so, something like that, when He was carried away and deported with the people to Babylon. But we know from his uh, letter, that his uh, book here, that he was a priest. And priests were not called to service until they were 30 years of of age in Israel in those days. So he was called to the priesthood while he was still in exile in uh, Babylon. And called upon them to prophesy uh, for the Lord to the exiles particularly. Now we have to remember that there were false prophets not only before the exile began, began, before the captivity, there were false prophets carried into the captivity in Babylon and they continued with their false prophecy. The fact that um, the true prophets like Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah had indeed under God predicted and prophesied of this captivity, of this deportation, of this being the judgment of God. That hadn't changed them from the kind of people they were. They still continued the false prophecy that assured or sought to assure the people, this is not going to last long. Just give it a little bit of time, we'll soon be back home. That was the kind of message that, of course, Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah denounced prior to the captivity itself beginning. And so Ezekiel was building on uh, the emphasis that Isaiah and Jeremiah gave to this captivity being a long stretch. It wasn't going to be over in a few months, even a few years. It was going to be 70 years before the Lord 
open the way for them to come back again to their own place. And so, in that context, God gave Ezekiel remarkable insight into gospel blessings. Blessings of the New Testament age, blessings associated with Christ, with his coming, with his death, so that in many ways, thirty-three uh, chapters 33 to 37 particularly, in Ezekiel are taken up with what you can call gospel blessings, the way in which God's Spirit comes to uh, be in his people, the way that he's going to turn their hearts from a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. All of that really is uh, pretty much identical with or uh, foresight into what the New Testament calls new birth, to be born again. And when you come to these chapters here, around 47, you see that uh, it speaks about the temple and the sanctuary and how that too is something that the Lord used as this vision was given to him uh, to, to him to see into uh, things that belong to an age to come. And here he is talking about the temple, uh, the temple which, uh, uh, from which this river began to flow firstly as a trickle and then as he went along uh, and measured it um, he saw that it was actually coming deeper and deeper as he went out and eventually it was so deep that he couldn't walk in it, couldn't even swim in it. It was something that no man could pass through, he said. And then you have the vision of something that reminds you of a chapter we read there in Revelation. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, where you find an emphasis on the trees that were growing on each side of the river and how their leaves were not going to wither and they shall bear fresh fruit every month. And there's really Ezekiel taken forward even beyond the days of Christ on earth and the days of gospel blessing into eternity itself, into the final sanctuary or temple, the spiritual temple of heaven itself where God's people will forevermore be nourished by this water, by this ample, ample uh, water of this river which comes and keeps on flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So look at, first of all, the source of the river. And when you go back a bit, in Ezekiel you can see that uh, the river was actually, um, the, the, the temple rather, was actually situated on a mountain top. It was taken up to a very high mountain, he says, back in chapter 8 indeed. But um, uh, on that mountain, this is, remember, Isaiah being given to see this in a vision so that God is teaching him through this. And that mountain, uh, as he calls it, a very high mountain, is where the temple was situated, the temple that he saw. And from that temple now, as you come to chapter 47, you begin to see this emphasis on water flowing from the temple. In other words, the water from the temple is coming downwards, down from the mountainside. It's always that emphasis in the Bible where you find the source of blessing. It's up there. It's never down here. It's never with ourselves. It's never, never something devised merely by human beings. It's not something other than God's own provision. It comes from his throne, to use the words of uh, Revelation 22. That's where the, the, the river has its source. That's where the, the, the properties of the river are situated. That's why it's the kind of river that it is that bears such plenitude and fullness of life because it has its source in God. Because it flows from the mountain, it flows from the temple, flows from God's residential palace where he himself has his abode. And there's notice also that a number of time, uh, times here 
it mentions the east, the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. And then it mentions it again a little later on. He uh, speaks of the outer gate that faces towards the east, and the water was trickling out the south side. Now, it could take too much of that, but quite often in the Bible, looking eastward, which is, of course, where the sun uh, where the, the, the daylight begins, where the sun rises, as we call it. And that's in the Old Testament days before uh, people really understood that it was the earth that was moving round the sun and the earth revolving on its axis. That's why you've got the language, the sun rises in the east and it sets in the opposite direction. Well, you're looking east for the source of the light. You're looking eastwards, towards where the light's going to come from. Very interestingly, in in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, where God set a seal or a barrier to the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, once man had been ejected by God, he set cherubim and a flaming sword on the east side of the garden. As if there's a, a hint there at least that if you're going to see a renewed access to the tree of life, it's going to come from the east. It's going to come from the source that is the source of light. It's going to come from God himself. And so he mentions here that this is where the mountain is, where the, the river is set. It's set on the mountain. It comes from the mountain, uh, from the temple on the mountain, rather, towards the east. And that's emphasizing the source being God. But you notice, too, that it's got an emphasis on an altar and on the sanctuary. You can see the uh, reference to that as you go through uh, the, the, the as you go through the passage. The en- emphasis on altar and sanctuary, of course, both being part of the temple structure, literally in the Old Testament days and here in the vision. Now, what does that mean? It means that this water of life, this river that's bearing so much life for these trees to keep on producing their fruit. Um, there's an emphasis that the blessing of God does not come without it coming via the altar and via the sanctuary. In other words, there's a reference here to atonement, to sacrifice. There's no water of life without the sacrifice that God has provided to initiate it, to fulfill it, to complete it, to keep it running. Isn't that the same as you find emphasized by Jesus himself? In John's Gospel especially, uh, we looked a fair bit time back, whenever it was, at what John's description of the cross is and of Jesus on the cross, and especially at that moment when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus with a spear and there came out blood and water. And in John's very symbolic language, as he uses it in his Gospel, as we saw at that time, you can say that that's certainly a reference to or symbolic of both the blood of atonement and the water of cleansing or the water that brings life, all proceeding from the side of God, from the side of Jesus, from the the sacrifice of Christ in his death, the death of Christ, the altar of the temple is the source. Uh, Or through that comes the river that bears life, that carries life to us, in the gospel. In other words, this really is representative of gospel blessings initiated by God through the sacrifice of Christ 
and coming with all its fullness, so full, so deep, that you cannot measure it, and flowing towards human beings like ourselves to carry us upwards into its provisions of life for us. And you go to uh, that wonderful passage in John where Jesus met with the woman of Samaria sitting by the wellside near Sychar. And as she came out to draw, you know the story so well for yourselves. But it's the words of Jesus to her especially uh, after she had initiated, he had initiated the, con- the conversation and where uh, she said, well, as he said to her, first of all, whoever drinks of this water this ordinary water, the water you came to draw, will thirst again, but the, one, the water that I shall give, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give, shall never thirst. Sir, give me this water, so that I don't have to come any longer here to draw. Of course, he meant spiritual water, the water that was in himself. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give, it shall be in him a well or a spring of water welling up into everlasting life. If you've ever seen a well or a fountain just so gushing full that is overflowing, that's what the picture is. It's not the kind of well where you've got to look down and wonder if there's any water in it. Where you've got to drop a stone and it carries... uh, a long time in silence till it has a plop at the bottom of the well. This is a well of water springing up out of itself, as he says, into everlasting life. Gospel blessings. Gospel blessings through Christ. Gospel blessings through the death of Christ. Gospel blessings coming down from above, coming down from the mountain where God is situated in his temple, And reaching with its fullness of life. People like you and I to bring us eternal life. That's the source of the river and that's where it comes from. It comes from God and all of that is represented there in the language used. But look at, secondly, the life-giving water of the river. Now, you've probably seen documentaries David Attenborough, some of these fellows who are experts in, in uh, at least in this part of this, this aspect of, of, of nature, where you find a film that's been uh, taken or video been taken over a very long period of time and then it's speeded up and you find a desert and desert conditions and dryness and there's absolutely nothing seems to be growing there. And then the water that comes from wherever its source is, comes over into that dryness, covers it up, and then as, as you feel, as you know, the film is spitted up, you see all of these plants suddenly appearing, and the greenness, and fish, and animals coming to feed upon that verbiage. Wonderful transformation. That's what Isaiah, of course, saw in his prophecy. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the rose. That's what the river of blessing brings. That's what comes from God's throne. That's what changes deserts into pasture lands. That's what he's got here as well, where you find an emphasis on the river um, increasing in its depth. But then you see, as he goes on and sees it, the water flows, verse 8, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Araba and enters the sea. 
And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. That's the water of the sea will become fresh. Now, what's remarkable about that, about that is not just that the, fact, the fact that he's talking about the sea, which, as you know, is salty, but this Araba and uh, the area uh, that, and that and then enters the sea, that's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea where nothing grows. The Dead Sea that is so toxic that as it is at present, it's a Dead Sea. Nothing grows there. It doesn't have anything there that will uh, enable growth. Far from it, it hinders it. But what it's saying here is that this river will enter that sea and the water of that sea will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea, that's the Dead Sea again, may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. And then verse uh, 10, there its fish will be many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. That's how they used to refer to it in those days. The Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. The sea is the Dead Sea. And what uh, Ezekiel is given uh, in this vision is that he, he sees this water, this river that's come from the, th- from the temple, from the sanctuary, from the place where the... Ta- where the, uh, where the um, uh, the, the uh, altar is situated and now it's come to be so full of life that everything it touches is marked by life. Even the Dead Sea has come to life. What is that indicative of? You who are dead in trespasses and sins, has he quickened? It's the quickening, it's the power of Christ in the gospel or through the gospel coming to change people's lives radically from what we were into what we become when this river of life touches and flows into our souls. You see, it's not just a few fish that come and talk here about a river and a sea that's now teeming with fish. And what does that remind you of? It reminds you of the description of the creation. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Before the curse of God fell upon the creation, as it's described in chapter 3 of Genesis, you have swarms of fish in the seas as God has created them and commanded them to multiply. Well, here is something that's taking us back to that sort of imagery, that sort of reality, except here it's the river of life in Christ, the gospel blessings that God has initiated and has come to flow toward us in Christ. And he's saying this is the effect of it. Wherever it goes, everywhere we'll live. Everything will live where the river goes. And the picture of abundance, the fishermen standing there and uh, coming to take their fish from this renewed sea, as it were. Well, that, of course, again is a spiritual picture, but it's a picture of plenty, of abundance, of abundant life. You know, sometimes we might lose that vision of the gospel. We don't live in days when the gospel is very evident by its power in many people's lives. 
There are multitudes tonight that don't know the power of the gospel in their own lives that will come to end this year if they're spared to see it without gospel life, without anything other than what we're born with, dead in trespasses and sins, dead seas all around us. But let's never lose our view of the gospel as you find it in the Bible. Because even in times when And we heard prayers tonight for God's blessing to come to multiply blessing and bring people to life and change the deadness around us and indeed the deadness to an extent that we find in ourselves. But the gospel is the gospel. Christ is Christ. Eternal life is eternal life. Never lose your vision of the gospel, your view of the gospel, your conviction that the gospel is God's power unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's not that the gospel has changed. It's not that God has changed. It's not that anything in Christ has changed. It's just that people don't want it. We need to pray that the Spirit of God will bring them to see their need of it. And so that imagery of uh, John, as we mentioned, John 4, and then John 7 as well, where um, you remember John 7, where Jesus, uh, where, where um, John says that uh, Jesus, while not yet glor- because not yet glorified, the Spirit of God had not yet come in the way that he was to come at Pentecost. Jesus, uh, on that last day of the feast, said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See, there's the imagery there, again, of plenty of water, a river of life. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, or out of his inner parts, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But you will notice there that it talks about this great river proceeding from believers, not just into them. Whoever believes from his inner parts will flow these rivers of living water. In other words, when God gives you to know this life, it's life that you then communicate. People notice it. You talk about it. You witness to it. It's something people cannot avoid seeing. And God uses such people as we are Poor though we see ourselves spiritually, he uses such as we are to be the channels from which living water reaches others and through which they are blessed. That's a great privilege. And you could also say that there are other matters of that that we don't need to go into, but you will notice there's an exception. There is an exception to this abundant life that comes from these waters that are teeming with life. Because it says in verse 11, But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. It's not the kind of salt you put on your food. It's salt that's just uh, very arid, salt that's toxic, the kind of place where nothing really can grow. And that's very obvious in the passage as a distinct difference to what's said elsewhere about the life, the abundant life, the blessings that come from this water. Because, you see, there are people who are touched with the gospel, but who hold on to their barrenness. 
who don't want to be changed from salty marshes into pleasant pastures. The waters reach their lives, but they choose death instead of the offer of life that the gospel brings to them. So they're left for salt. They don't have a life that produces fruit like the others that are mentioned in the passage. Psalm uh, 68, for example, mentions that. We sometimes sing it, but maybe not these verses as often as the other verses in Psalm 68, but verses uh, in verse 6 particularly, um, you find God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. See the contrast? There are those that God, through his blessing, those who receive the offer of life in Christ, he settles them in a home. He settles them with others in a community. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Their life remains a desert, a place that's arid and fruitless. John Owen wrote on this very verse, actually, verse 11 of, of, Psalm, of Ezekiel 47. This is what he said, Let not men boast themselves in the outward enjoyment of the word, nor rest themselves in it. It were well indeed if all were believers to whom the word is preached, if all the land were healed where the waters of the sanctuary come. But the Holy Spirit tells us they are not so. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, the word preached did not profit them. Capernaum was exalted to heaven in the use of means, but brought down to hell for the neglect of them. That's a very solemn point to make, but it reminds us that those who reject the gospel do it willingly. They're choosing death rather than life. That's why we have to keep on praying for them and witnessing to them that they will come to know that freshness of life through the invigorating river of the gospel, the river of life in Christ especially. But then um, there's also, I think, satisfaction uh, where you go on to uh, read near the end of this passage. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will flow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. That's the secret, that's the key to their ongoing fruitfulness. And really, this is really bringing into heaven itself, because these words are virtually the same as you find in Revelation chapter 22 that we read where you find uh, the description there, the water flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything. A cursed death doesn't appear there. There's no place for death. It's all to do with life. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Because the water comes from the sanctuary, flows from God, from his throne. It's life because he 
has initiated and created it for us. Just like you find in Revelation 7, those that were seen clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And then you find that in that chapter, uh, Jesus himself is said to pastor them. The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall pastor them. They are there as sheep. They are the ones now glorified with him. The final state of the redeemed. What's he going to be doing all eternity for them and with them? He's going to be their pastor shepherd. The lamb, the shepherd, who is in the midst of the throne. The source of their life. He shall pastor them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No death, no mourning, no sorrow, no crying. For the former things have passed away. May God bless these thoughts on his word to us. Let's pray. Amen.